Welcome to the Runner's World Show, where each week we hope to entertain you, inspire you, and inform you about all things running. I'm David Willey, Editor-in-Chief of Runner's World. This week in the kick, the unstoppable Ed Whitlock. The 85-year-old runner has set yet another marathon record, plus a few other notable records that were set over the weekend. Then we talk about why the most important part of your run may just be in the 10 minutes after you've stopped running. But first, my interview with ultra runner and author Dean Karnazes. Dean is famous for his epic running adventures. And here we talk about the night he became a runner, the perks and the pitfalls of being a public figure, and his latest book, The Road to Sparta. In the book, he debunks what is perhaps the most famous story in running history, the story of Pheidippides running from Marathon to Athens, or so we thought. Dean also recounts one of the toughest races he's ever done. The Spartathlon, I really struggled. I was having a bad race. I was eating food that wasn't sitting well. And there was a point where I thought, I'm really going to have to work hard to get to that finish line. I fell asleep while I was running. I remember waking up, kind of you know, stumbling down the road, realizing I'm sleep running. Uh, I started to dissociate from my body. Um, I was a mess. Thank you for listening and stay with us. Dean Karnazes is probably the best-known ultra-runner of all time. He's won some big races in his career, including the 135-mile Badwater Ultra Marathon. But Dean's really famous because when he goes long, he goes really, really long. He's run 200-mile relays solo, no teammates. He has logged 350 miles in a single stretch. And in 2006, he completed 50 marathons in 50 states in 50 days. He's also the best-selling author of the book Ultra Marathon Man. His latest book, The Road to Sparta, Reliving the Ancient Battle and Epic Run that Inspired the World's Greatest Foot Race, will be out next week. Last weekend, Dean joined the Runner's World crew for our fifth annual Runner's World Half and Festival in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. In true form, he ran the trail race on Friday, the 5K and the 10K on Saturday, and the half marathon on Sunday. That's a total of 26.2 miles over three days, which for Dean is basically a warm-up lap. I caught up with him during a brief break in the weekend's festivities to talk to him about his life as a runner, about what it's like to be an inspiration to so many people, and about his latest running and writing adventures. Well, Dean, thank you so much for being with us on the Runner's World Show. Great to have you. And I want to talk to you about myths and legends, a fitting couple of topics, especially given your new book, The Road to Sparta. And con- congratulations, by the way, on your new book. We're thrilled to be publishing it. And there are a lot of myths and legends in there, sp- specifically the the legend of Pheidippides. But before we get to that, I want to talk a little bit about your origin story at, as a runner and um, the, the legend, if you will, of, of Dean Karnazes. So how did you get started running? I know it involves your 30th birthday, and I also know it involves your sister a little bit. So just talk about how the big changes in your life came about and how those led you to becoming this well-known ultra runner today. <laughs> 
you know, let's dial back the clock a little bit because I actually started running home from kindergarten when I was six years old. Um, I remember being in class and, you know, the teacher saying, sit still and pay attention. And that's probably the worst thing to tell a six-year-old boy because all I want to do is run around and not pay attention. Uh, but I remember uh, trying to have the discipline, the self-discipline to sit there through a lecture that I was not interested in. And when class got out, I was so pent up, I just started running home from kindergarten. It was about a mile, I would say. And I just found that I really enjoyed it. Like I really related to the world on the move versus sitting there uh, and having someone talk to me. And I loved to run. I kept running up until I was a freshman in high school and ran cross country uh, and then hung up my shoes. Literally, I, the, the cross country coach retired, a guy I loved. And I thought, you know what? I don't want to join the track team. That's not my scene. I'm a cross country runner and didn't run at all until I was 30 years old. You're right. And what caused my running to start back up is I was in a bar in San Francisco celebrating <laughs> as we do on our 30th birthday. And 11 o'clock at night, I told my friends I'm leaving. And they said, hold it, you know, let's have another round of tequila. I said, no, no, I'm going to run 30 miles right now to celebrate my 30th birthday. <laughs> and they laughed at me. They said, you're not a runner, you're drunk. And I said, yeah, I'm drunk, but I'm still going to do it. So I literally walked out of the bar, uh, stripped down to my undies. I had like these silk underwear on and just started running south drunk. <laughs> and uh, 30 miles later, the sunrise the next day, uh, I, I reached my goal in Half Moon Bay. And that kind of forever changed the course of my life. And you mentioned my sister. Yeah, my sister was uh, tragically killed on her 18th birthday in a car accident. And we were really, really close friends. She was like my closest confidant. And I went through all the stages of bereavement, you know, the denial, the anger, uh, the repression. And finally, I just came full circle. And I said, you know, um, she would want you just to, to live your life to the best of your ability. Just do what you love. And that would be the best way to honor her and her memory. So from that point at 30 years old, I said, you know what, I'm going to be a runner. I'm not that fast. I like going awkward distances, bizarre distances, but I'm somehow going to piece it together. And this is going to be my life. So what kinds of things specifically do you remember thinking about on that 30 mile run? I, despite the fact that you were drunk and maybe you don't remember everything, what was going through your head and how did it crystallize and help you decide that you were really going to change your life? Because it wasn't just that you went for one run. It, it also involved the, the career path that you were on at that time, right? And other bigger changes in your life. What, what was going through your mind when you were making your way south in the dark alone? <laughs> food. <laughs> Where to get food? Uh, a lot was going through my mind, but it wasn't quite as advanced as, as some of the, the, uh, the ideas you just expressed. More, I was thinking, boy, this hurts. This is really tough. Like, I haven't done anything that is really difficult in years. You know, I've got a, I've got a great job. Um, you know, I've got a company car. I've got a fat paycheck. i got stock options. These things should make me happy. They don't. Life is too easy. And I was out there struggling. I was in pain. I thought, I'm not going to make it. Um, keep going. And it was the first time in 15 years I actually felt alive. I, it's hard to express. But I actually felt, you know, my skin tingling. I felt passionate. I felt alive. And it became this personal journey. It was almost like, you know, salvation was waiting in Half Moon Bay. Just keep going. And, and then afterward, um, a couple weeks afterward, because when I finished, I couldn't walk for about two weeks, I started thinking, okay, you know, how, how are you going to piece this together? How are you going to change your life? When are you going to resign? You've told me, and I've heard you say it to others as well, you're happiest when you're suffering or at least struggling physically. Why is that? 
I think uh, there's magic and misery. And I think that every runner knows that. I mean, why do we run? It makes no sense. Why do we do what we do? <laughs> if you said to someone, <laughs> okay, you want to go in for 30 minutes, be in tremendous pain and just not want to take another step and keep going. Is that your idea of something enjoyable? And we runners would say, that's what we live for. How do you express that? How do you explain it? Where's the logic there? I don't know. I just think there's, there, there's magic and misery. So that point of view has led you to do all kinds of amazing things that some people might consider irrational, insane things, perhaps. It's a long list, and we certainly don't need to touch on all of them. But one of them is you once ran, if I have this correct, 350 miles continuously. And by continuously, that doesn't mean that you never stopped. You stopped to get something to eat. You stopped to use the bathroom, but you didn't stop to sleep. You didn't take long, meaningful breaks, right? 350 miles. Why? <laughs> well, the genesis of it is that I, I signed up for this 12-person relay race. You know, the, the, it's a very popular format. There are 200 miles. Um, you know, there's you, you run three legs, basically. But I didn't have 11 friends, so I thought I got to run this whole thing by myself. So I ran this 200-mile relay race, and I made it. And I thought, wow, that was pretty amazing. You know, where do you go from here? And I kept bumping the distances out further and further. I thought, could you run 10 marathons back-to-back, 262 miles uh, without stopping, just continuous? And I, I lived through that. I thought, okay, how far can you go? And 350 miles seemed like the next jump. <laughs> it was ludicrous. To, to do that and I, th- I at one point thought maybe a human can run 500 miles nonstop, but I'm not that human <laughs> I mean 350 miles was uh, psychotic is the best way to explain it I had a film crew that was following me and I'll never forget and they were in a helicopter a lot of time uh, on the third day of running with no sleep it was about mile 320 I saw this little stick figure and I'm watching this stick figure kind of moving along the road and I'm like that's bizarre And I'm looking further and further, and all of a sudden it dawns on me, that thing down there, that's me. (laughs) Which I thought, is this not a body experience? I mean, I don't know what that was, but I I started to think maybe this is how you feel before you die. (laughs) So uh, when I hit 350, I was very done. I imagine. How, How do you go about running 350 miles? I mean, mentally, a lot of people struggle to run three miles a lot of people think a marathon 26 miles is this insurmountable distance how do you keep going how do you tactically go at it well you you try to stay in the moment you try to be present in the now and it's not something um, that we usually do throughout the course of the day I mean we're being pulled in many different directions we're thinking about the future uh, we're reflecting on the past uh, when you set out a, a, an incredible goal like that you don't think about anything but the present moment of time and just being the best that you can be in that moment of time. It's almost zen-like and it does require a lot of mental discipline not to let your mind wander but you don't think about the finish line. You don't think about even the next morning. You just think about putting one foot in front of the other for a very long period of time but you don't think about what's left. So are you picking out a tree or a road sign and fixating on that and then getting to that tree or road sign and then picking out another thing down the road? and then fixating on that and then getting to that? Is it is it that simple, just stretched out over an incredibly long time? Yeah, and sometimes it gets even more granular. I mean, you don't even, you, it's, not even a, it's not even a road sign 10 feet up the road. It's just that next step. Literally, take your next step, take your next step, your next step, 
Yeah, it, it sounds like a cliche, right? How do you run 350 miles one step at a time, except when you're actually trying to do something that audacious? It's not a cliche at all. It probably takes all your willpower and physical stamina to actually do just one step and then another step. Is there something liberating about that? Is it hypnotic? Does it um, become any easier at any point because you can just sort of dissociate? You know, I'm a simple guy. And life is complex. Life is so complicated. And when I'm doing these sort of um, audacious, as you call it, uh, distances, um, there's this singularity of focus. Uh, it's just one thing. The, the, the rules of engagement are black and white. I mean, life is never black and white. You think you're going in the right direction, and they move the finish line, right? I mean, it's confusing. Uh, when you do an event like this, you know that there's a starting point, And if you're going to succeed, you reach the finish. Uh, if you fall short, you fail. It's black and white. It's simple. And all your focus is just to getting to the finish line, one goal. And I've talked to mountain climbers that have said the same thing. They've said, you know, in preparing for the expedition, things are frenetic. There's lots of moving pieces. We're, you know, there's a lot of anxiety. Uh, when we're on the mountain, our focus becomes very clear. There's a summit. If we get there, we succeed. If we don't, we fail. And it's almost like a Zen-like presence. Uh, and it, to me, it's very cleansing. It's almost rejuvenating for the soul. Do you get addicted to it at all? If you don't get that physical fix for a period of time, whether it's a few days or a few weeks, do you, do you feel like you have to have it? <laughs> Absolutely. I think running is an addiction. I mean, I, I won't deny it. Um, I'm, I get anxiety. I mean, I, I, it's not, I think it's a good addiction because I don't have withdrawals per se. I just want it. So uh, it's unlike a drug or anything you put in your system. Running to me is a, is a good affliction. It's something that I think the world would be better off if everyone ran. Well, you've, you've done a lot to inspire a lot of people to run. I want to talk to you about that as well. Another audacious thing that you did was your 50-50-50, right? 50 marathons in 50 states in 50 days. And I flew out to my hometown of Grand Rapids, Michigan, to run part of the Grand Rapids marathon with you during that. And some of those 50 marathons were official marathons, right? And some of them weren't official. You had to set out your own 26.2 mile course and lots of people came out and ran with you sometimes for the entirety of the race, sometimes for a few miles at a time. And it really amazed me how many people came up to you during this race to say hello, to thank you, and as often as not to unburden themselves of their own life stories and that wasn't just because you are an ultra runner or that you have this amazing endurance it was because of other things that people connect with you what why is that do you think what why do you think people come up to you and share so much of themselves with you whether it's running or in any anywhere else that's a good question, and I'm not sure I have the answer. I think, you know, runners, it's cliche, but we are kindred spirits. I mean, we can relate to each other because we've suffered, and I think shared suffering brings people together. You've seen this. You've run a marathon. You've run these difficult races. When you suffer together, you're, you're tighter. It's something you can both relate to. Uh, I think the other thing, just with my lifestyle, I think people, uh, I give them permission to live life like they want to live it. Uh, I chose my own path. Um, I was true to myself. Uh, and I think that people find that empowering. They think, wow, you know, this guy, ha I, I'm stuck in my job. I don't like it. Maybe I can change. You know, this guy has done it. It can be done. And I think that, um, that, that that's a dynamic at play. Yeah. 
you gave up the corporate job, right? Did you give up drinking too? Uh, largely. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not doing the beer mile with you guys tonight. <laughs> I drink wine. I have a glass of wine once in a while, but pretty much drink, gave up drinking. Yeah. Yeah. The, and the only reason I ask that is some of the people that I've overheard talk to you are people who had addiction problems and, and gave up alcohol and, and other addictions and gave you credit for helping them do that. And, and you mentioned that you were, you were, you had been drinking quite a bit on your 30th birthday and that you were drunk when you set out on, on this run. And I, I guess I was just curious if these satisfactions that you get from physical struggle replace something else, whether one so-called addiction has replaced another. With me, I think that's definitely the case. And I think with others as well. And you've seen it. I, it's That's been something I was, I never anticipated being me, that I would have people come up to me and say, you know, I, I used to be an alcoholic. I used to be a heroin addict. And I read your book in prison and I'm a runner now. And, you know, thank you. You've changed my life. And that's powerful stuff. I mean, to me, that's like, that's the greatest honor I could ever have. I, I don't care about monetary things or anything. If someone says to you, you changed my life, it just makes me feel incredible. Um, weight loss is the other thing, and you've seen some of this. I've ta- I mean, so many guys come up to me and say, you know, I was 200 pounds overweight, and someone gave me your book, or I read about your story, and I thought, you know what, I'm gonna walk a 5K, and now I'm gonna run a marathon. I don't know why, I've heard that a thousand times, and I'm thinking, what have I done? <laughs> I'm a crazy ultra marathoner. What have I done to inspire people to change their life like that? I, I don't know if I have the answer. But I, I feel very honored to, I also feel honored that I'm authentic, that I'm really who I am. I don't have any, you know, skeletons in the closet. Um, you know, there's other uh, notable sports figures, and we won't mention names, that have been, you know, caught cheating, if you will, doping, whatever. Uh, that'll ne- No one will ever be let down by me, and that makes me feel good. Yeah, I'm not going to win races. I'm not going to be standing on podiums all the time. They're never going to find that I'm anyone but who I am. So you mentioned your book, Ultra Marathon Man, right, which was your first book, which told the story that you have just shared here and lots of other things. Uh, It became a bestseller, probably not something that you expected necessarily. And you got pretty famous pretty quickly, right, in part because of the book and in part because of your athletic exploits and in part because so many people did connect with you. You gained lots of sponsors and fame brings lots of positive things, I would think. But I also think that fame is tricky and complicated. What's what's fame like for you? You know, people ask me, what what is it like being famous? I'm like, I don't know. You have to ask someone who's famous because <laughs> I really don't think of myself as anything but a runner. And I don't know if that's just how I'm hardwired, but I really don't think of myself as anything special. And when people come up to me and they have books and they're like, you know, want to do selfies, this and that, and this happens across the, the globe, I just feel like it's an honor. Like these are, the, my fans, if you will, if you can call them fans, are good people. Like these are people I'd want to want to sit down and have a glass of wine with or, you know, hang out with. They're not like, you know, rock star, you know, groupies. I mean, these are good people. So it's, it's kind of heartwarming and it's never really grown old. I mean, I never get tired of someone saying, wow, you really inspired me. I don't, maybe it's just who I am, but um, I, I just don't think of, I'm pretty simple again. So I, I just will never take um, my success for granted or never believe that I really am that successful. 
And then there, there's a little bit of a flip side to fame, especially in our current culture, right? There are the haters out there. And I know you've dealt with that over the course of your career. As many people as admire you and relate to you and love you and credit you with all kinds of great changes in their lives, there are people out there who don't like you as much and even question some of the things you know, that you have accomplished. What, what's that like? Is that hard? Or do you struggle with that? Or are you able to achieve sort of a detachment about that as well? Well, you know, in reflecting back to your previous question, that has actually been the hardest adaptation to being, quote unquote, you know, recognized is this kind of backlash by some people. And at first it was, yeah, it was shocking. Like I didn't understand it. And some, some of the criticism, you know, like, okay, I wrote a book about ultra marathoning and now I've given away the holy grail of running. Like everyone knows about ultra marathoning now. <laughs> well, how do you defend something like that? I mean, everyone's got a right to their opinion. And some of the criticism um, I value. I, I, some of it's legitimate, you know, and some of it has made me a better person. I listen to it. Um, then again, there there are, you know, comments on, you know, online by people that use aliases. They don't have the courage to use their own name. You know, butt cheese. Uh, this guy's a fraud. You know, he's not that good. Uh, toe jam. I mean, when I see stuff like that, that's just kind of more attacking my character than anything I am, um, you know, that, that I kind of discount. But it's, you know, it's, I've never had anyone come up to my face and say, I really don't like you. I, I think you're a fraud or, you know, you're, you're, you don't deserve what you've got. And my dad always said, you know, if you have a problem with someone, don't slink around behind their back. Approach them and talk to them openly and honestly. No one's come up to me and said anything. Um, so, again, it's, it's been the hardest thing to adapt to, though, is, is, is having that. What's an example of some constructive criticism that you've gotten that felt valid and that you really gave some thought to and maybe adopted and, and changed your life because of? You know, um, improving my marathon time. Like people say, you know, this guy's he's not even that quick of a marathoner. Yeah, he can run a lot back to back. So, you know, why doesn't he go out and try to PR in a marathon, you know? And so I thought, all right, I got I to gotta pick up my pace, you know, run a couple sub three marathons. Um, so, you know, that's been one thing. Uh, the other thing that I've I've heard is, and these are not necessarily criticisms, but seeing online, wow, you know, I waited in line for like an hour and a half for Dean, and then they just pulled him away. So I always tell my quote-unquote handlers now, um, look, I'm going to sign every book that's here. I'm not going to walk away. I mean, these people, yeah, I've got to be somewhere, but these people are waiting in line. I'm not going to walk away like I'm someone famous. I mean, I'm going to stand here and sign every book, or you're going to tell them where I'm going next, and they can come with me. So that's one thing I've adapted to. And it can be it can be grueling. I got to be honest. To do a, a book signing for two or three hours is pretty grueling stuff. So we talked about fifty, fifty, fifty. We talked about the three hundred and fifty mile run. What do you think is the most difficult thing that you have accomplished? Uh, raising a teenage daughter. <laughs> I'm serious. <laughs> You're laughing. Doesn't get much tougher than that. Oh man. <laughs> It's hard to pinpoint one most difficult point. Uh, yeah, you know, I, I will say that probably one of my most um, disturbing uh, ultra marathons. I ran across Haiti earlier this year. This is after the earthquake six years ago, but this is prior to the hurricane. Things were atrocious prior to the hurricane. I cannot imagine what things are like there now. And seeing Haiti, not as a politician, you know, not as an ambassador, but someone half naked in running gear moving at six miles an hour 
and seeing how desperate things are there. Uh, you know, I'm a can-do American guy. Like, okay, you know, Haiti's got some problems. We'll get in there and fix things. I, I walked away with just no hope at all. Yeah, it was it was really shocking to see the conditions. And I've been to a lot of third world countries. I've seen poverty. I've seen bad living conditions. I've never seen anything like Haiti. So what did what did you see? What was so different in Haiti? I mean, I saw a woman eat a pregnant woman eating a cat because she's. I mean, there's no there's no food. I saw women eating dirt. I mean, it was. Yeah, I saw dead animals floating down rivers with kids playing there next to them. I mean, it was it was just so juxtaposed that. You know, there, here's this group of runners going down there for this fundraiser. We were like ghosts to most of these people. I mean, they, they we are, they're thinking, how am I going to live through the day? Last thing they want to see is some, you know, buff American in colorful running gear. You know, hey, how's it going? Let's high five. Sure, kids, you know, smiled and they thought it was fun and kids did run with us. But a lot of the stuff I saw was just shocking. Yeah. So what kind of interactions did you have with the locals, if, if you had any? No, we, we uh, stayed in churches. We stayed in people's houses. Um, like I said, the kids, a lot of kids loved running with us. And there was just certain pockets of such desperate poverty that we did not connect. Uh, some, some of the older population, you know, they, they, the women smiled and they waved and they were giggling. So maybe, you know, for an afternoon we uplifted their spirits. Maybe they'll talk about this group that went running through years from now. But... Uh, more than you know, the the best thing we did was we raised money for building infrastructure because they don't need handouts. They need to build a sustainable economy, and they need housing that doesn't you know crumble when the earth moves. How long did it take to cover those two hundred and thirty miles? I think it was eight days. I can't remember the agenda that we followed, um, but it was we ran uh, I think about twenty five miles a day, kind of thing. I want to bring it back to to myths and legends, uh, and maybe not as audacious as some of the other things you've done in your career. But you recently uh, ran um, a marathon in Greece, right? And and this is the subject of your of your new book. So talk about why you were interested in this part of the world and what it is that you set out to do. So, you know, here's something that probably a lot of listeners don't know. My name is not Dean, so I am a fraud. Uh, my name is actually, <laughs> <laughs> my name is Constantine. So Constantine Nicholas Carnassus, and I'm 100% Greek. And uh, I was raised as a Greek. I went through Greek school. Uh, when I got to be in my teens, I rebelled against everything Greek. Like, I'm not Greek, I'm American. You, you Greeks are crazy. You know, let me out of this place. <laughs> You're wild, and I'm not one of you. So I tried to to run away from my Greekness, uh, but I'd always known the story of uh, you say Phidippides uh, or Phidippides. Yeah, I've always said it Phidippides. How? What's the right way to pronounce it? Phidippides? Is that what you said? You're Greek. <laughs> you nailed it. The Greeks say Phidippides, but here in America, most people say. Phidippides and yeah. like Jeff Galloway's store, his running store uh, in Atlanta, it's Phidippides. So I typically just say Phidippides. Um, you know, the legend and the lore of what really happened out there um, is two different things. And most people think there's this guy who ran a marathon and died, but it's it's much more complex than that. Let's just do the whole legend just for listeners who may, who may not know it, right? There, there's this battle in this town of Marathon 
between the Greeks and the Persians. And the Greeks were far outnumbered, but somehow managed to repel the Persians. And to announce and celebrate their victory, they sent this soldier named Pheidippides or Pheidippides to Athens to spread the news. And he ran there and shared the news, um, victory, victory, and then he died. That's essentially the legend. And it turns out that what you found is that a lot of that stuff is not true at all, or at least is different than what the legend has. Is that about right? That is, uh, yeah, that is really about right. And I'll, I'll digress just a bit and say, um, most people, I would say, don't know what marathon means. So I think most people uh, would define marathon as um, something extreme, extremely grueling, right? There's marathon sessions of Congress. There's marathon traffic jams. Um, a runner would say, well, a marathon, I know what that means. It's, it's 26.2 miles. Um, the true meaning of marathon is fennel. You're looking at me like, what? Like fennel, fennel like the herb. the herb. Yeah, because the marathon where the Persians invaded is this huge flat plain of fennel. Fennel grows wild in Greece. So that's why it became mar known as marathon. It's just wild fennel growing everywhere. The translation of marathon in, Gre in ancient Greek is fields of fennel. Huh. Because where the Persians landed was this huge field of fennel. Yeah, okay. yeah the herb. <laughs> Uh, but when the Persians landed, um, the Greeks, uh, the Athenians specifically, said, oh, we're going to get slaughtered. Um, the Persians, you know, we've got 10,000 guys. There's 50,000 Persians. They know how to fight. We're just a bunch of scrappy Greeks. We need the Spartans. So if you've ever seen like 300, we are Sparta. You know, this is Sparta. So they said to this uh, runner, this day-long runner, and Hemer or Dromai or Dromi, uh, means day-long runner and these were professional runners that were trained as ultra runners and the reason they used runners to spread uh, information and to gather intelligence um, is because a runner could outrun a horse especially these long distances especially in Greece if you've ever been it's incredibly mountainous so you're kind of scrambling up some of these hills a horse could never make it so Pheidippides uh, left from Athens and ran to Sparta and that was about 100, in the ancient day, it was about 140 miles. And according to Herodotus, who's the father of history, he arrived in Sparta the day after he set out. So, you know, roughly sub 36 hours to run 140 miles barefoot, uh, eating only figs, olives, cured meat, uh, and he got to Sparta and he made it. So that's kind of where the story's going. It gets more complex from there. But what about this legendary run from Marathon to Athens, which most people associate with coining the term Marathon, a 26.2-mile run or foot race, not you know fields of fennel. What about that? You're saying that actually what Pheidippides did was run from Athens to Sparta, not from Marathon to Athens. How do those two things jibe or not? Funny you should ask. <laughs> So when he arrived in Sparta and explained to the Spartans what, were going on, what was going on, the Spartans said, yes, we'll come, we'll help you, we'll battle the Persians together, but we can't leave for six days because the moon isn't full. And their religion forbade them from leaving for battle unless there was a full moon. So now Pheidippides has got this quandary. He's like, oh man, they're going to come back, they're going to help my fellow Athenians, but it's going to take a while. So he decides, i got to run back and tell my guys. 
So he turns around and runs back to Marathon to inform his guys, the Athenians, the Spartans are coming, they're just going to be delayed. At that point, the general said, we can't wait. The Persians are fortifying their, their, their position every day. We need to attack now. So the battle went down. The Greeks somehow won. The Athenians won. And at that point, they said, we need you to go back and tell the elders uh, that we won. Nike, Nike, or Nike, 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 Nike. We are victorious. Victory, victory. So he ran that last stretch after already completing an ultra marathon. And that's the real story. Wow. All right. So what else about this legend isn't quite the way people understand it? Well, the minor detail, it might not have been Pheidippides who ran that final marathon. <laughs> so the historians uh, have called this person someone else that ran the, you know, I like romantically to think it was him after, you know, this grueling ultra marathon that he does this one last act. So the people who think that it wasn't Pheidippides who made that run, who, who do they think it was? Is, do they have any idea? They call it another runner. There's a couple different people that have been named. But again, David, um, Herodotus, who wrote about Pheidippides, wrote 50 years after the Battle of Marathon. Uh, Plutarch and the other historians, you're talking 500 years after the Battle of Marathon, them assigning this marathon run to someone else. So Herodotus doesn't even mention this final marathon run. So there's a... <laughs> There's a lot of a lot of forgery and fraud going on here. Yeah. And, the, you know, the the thing is, we will never know the real truth. I mean, it's it was twenty five hundred years ago. And, you know, we ha I have all the record that exists, but nothing's going to surface now, you know, from what happened back then. So how did you piece together this alternative view of the legend of Marathon and of Pheidippides? Were there documents that you were given access to? What were the puzzle pieces that you found when you were over there? So I was put in touch with one of the foremost authorities on ancient Greek culture, um, uh, Professor Paul Cartledge from Cambridge. So I used him as a resource for everything. He, this man is a walking encyclopedia, Wikipedia. I've never met a man that is so versed on ancient Greek culture, and he's not even a runner. <laughs> but uh, he, he was my resource for uh, routing. He put me on to other scholars. I shared with me historical documents. Um, kind of when I asked him questions, he'd pull the record, kind of triangulate pieces, and give me an answer uh, pertaining to this. You know, the, the way I wanted to write this book. So he gave me a lot of information. I also did a lot of field research. So I went over to Greece and spent a lot of time running in the hills of Greece. Poor me, right? <laughs> and swimming in the Mediterranean. Uh, but I wanted to see firsthand what the terrain was like and experience what it would have been like trying to forage for food, uh, trying to find water along the way, and so forth. And I gotta be honest, I was the most shocking thing to me is that, sure, a lot, is, a lot has changed in 2,500 years, but a lot hasn't changed in Greece. I mean, there are still these ancient byroads, these passes, that haven't seen footsteps for 2,500 years, which is remarkable, because most of the other, you know, Western world is so developed, Greece is still very nascent and raw in that regard. And you also recreated Pheidippides' run, right? What was that like? Well, I recreated bits and pieces because I could never get to the actual path that he took. Uh, as much research as I did, I could, we could never really know where he went because, again, the record is what it is. So one thing I did is I had a, I got a costume, a hoplite costume, which is basically a modified toga. 
and I thought, okay, I'm going to try running a marathon in this and just see if there are hot spots or whatever. So I ran this this the Silicon Valley Marathon wearing this toga outfit, and it was not comfortable. <laughs> just say there's there's chafing where the sun don't shine. So uh, I got to experience that, and then I did the race called the Spartathlon, which is a modern day ultra marathon. It's the best recreation that we have now of Pheidippides' path to Sparta. And it's 153 miles. Um, you have to complete the race in 36 hours. And during this race, I ate only the ancient food. So I trained using uh, cured meat, olives, figs, and the stuff they called pastilli, or etrion. Uh, Homer refers to it as etrion. It's, it's mashed up sesame seeds and honey. So it's like a paste that uh, is an energy paste. And I only drank water, no, no uh, you know, electrolyte replacement fluids, nothing. And that's how I ran the Spartathlon. And what was it like adopting that diet? I learned some good lessons. I mean, olives are great in the morning when it's kind of cool, but you know, when it's really hot out, <laughs> you don't feel like shoving a bunch of olives in your mouth. Uh, the cured meat is really salty, so that was good to just even suck on it if you could uh, to get the salt out. Uh, you can only eat so many figs in a day because <laughs> the next day is not pretty. So you got you to be careful with your fig intake. Uh, but I lost a lot of weight. I lost a lot of uh, muscle weight. So I, my weight, I dropped down. I'm about 148, 149. I dropped down to about 142 at the start of this race. You talked earlier about what sounded like a hallucination when you were doing that 350-mile run. And in the book, you write about having a sort of out-of-body experience, if that's an okay way to characterize it. Tell me about that. You know, th this just happens spontaneously. And, uh, you know, I've done a lot of races. As you know, I've done a lot of races that are maybe even more difficult, multi-day races across, you know, the Gobi Desert, across Atacama that might be considered more difficult than the Spartathlon. But the Spartathlon, I really struggled. I was having a bad race. I was eating food that wasn't sitting well. And there was a point where I thought, I'm really going to have to work hard to get to that finish line. And it got worse. And I thought, there's a point where I just said, they're either going to carry me out. Like I'm, I'm willing to just fall over. I don't think I'll die. Maybe I will die. But I'm, I'm going to run until I literally collapse. And they take me out of here in an ambulance or I reach that finish line. And I just had that mindset. I was, I, I don't know why it was so personal for me. Like I had to do this and yeah, I fell asleep while I was running. I remember waking up kind of, you know, stumbling down the road, realizing I'm sleep running. Uh, I started to dissociate from my body. Um, it, I was a mess. And then I'd come back in, I'd hear cheering. The, the finish of this race, the Spartathlon is unlike any finish of any race in the world. And that is, there's no finish shoot. So you run with a timing chip and everything, but you don't go through an official finish line. When you reach Sparta, the main square, uh, there's a, a big bronze statue of King Leonidas, you know, the guy, the guy from 300, and you touch his feet. And when you touch his feet, that's when the clock stops. So I just remember being so out of it and all of a sudden seeing these big bronze feet and just reaching up and touching his feet. And someone said, you did it, you did it, you're done. And, and that was it. Do you have any explanation for what happened to you, or is it still a mystery? You know, I'm sure it's calorie deprivation because I stopped eating. I literally, my crew later told me I didn't, I didn't have anything but water for 75 miles. You know, you're catabolizing your body in a sense. So maybe there's different um, substances in my in my system. 
I don't know. But I, I, the one thing I do know is I wanted to live the uh, Pheidippides experience. And I think I did. I mean, in hindsight, that is exactly the experience I wanted. I wanted to know what it felt like to run until you died. And that's not, it wasn't my hope. I, mean, I was hoping to blaze this race, you know, finish top 10 kind of thing. But it turned to be something completely different. And in the end, it was really beautiful. So I was just going to ask you if you have any favorite phrases or any favorite concepts or philosophies that you picked up on your trip over there, and if you could say them in Greek. Uh, there's a Greek saying, it's uh, o tolomon nika, which means who dares wins. And that just means have the courage to show up at the starting line and to dare, you're going to be a winner, period. That's a good one. All right, so in closing, Dean, what's next? What's your next audacious goal or trip or whatever you want to call it, near-death experience? (laughs) Uh, Okay, funny you should ask. So this is something I've been working on now for probably six years. Uh, Starting hopefully in November of 2017, I'm going to try to run a marathon in every country of the world in one year. So I'm going to take off on this global expedition. There's 203 countries. I'm working with the UN and the State Department right now to get passports and permits to get into all of these countries. Uh, of the 203 countries, only 109 actually have organized marathons. So not even I wouldn't even recreate the marathons in some countries. It'd be a brand new marathon route. So we'd have to GPS a route that's 26.2 miles, maybe establish a marathon in that country. Uh, but that's, that's my goal is to start in uh, uh, November of 2017, finish with the New York City Marathon in November of 2018. Wow, so that's soon. That that's you know a little over a year away. Are, where will you start? Do you think are you far enough along in your planning to be able to have a direction or an actual route in mind yet? So there's a company I'm working with called Hawkeye Sports and Entertainment, and they're logistics experts, and they've mapped out this whole thing. So we have the countries all mapped out. We'll start in the southern hemisphere uh, because it's obviously it's winter in November. So we'll start in probably Sydney, Australia and then work our way to the Northern Hemisphere. And they pretty much have it mapped out. Well, I don't doubt for a moment that you will find a way to pull this off, Dean, (laughs) and I can't wait to hear about it. Congrats on the book. Thanks for being with us. It's always great to talk with you. Thanks for having me run by, literally. That was ultra runner and author Dean Karnazes. For a link to his new book, The Road to Sparta, which is published by Rodale, go to runnersworld.com slash audio. Okay, so yesterday I did what I often do. I went out for a quick run during the day. What did I do afterwards? Showered, then went straight back to my office and sat down. Sound familiar? So many of us are guilty of heading straight from our workouts to our cars or our desk chairs. And when we do that, we neglect doing a proper cool down. We don't consider the importance of taking our bodies from a work state to a rest state. Jay Cardiello is on a mission to tell runners one thing. Spending just 10 minutes post-workout on a few drills can make all the difference when it comes to preventing injury. 
Jay speaks from experience. As a long jumper at the University of Arkansas in the 1990s, he suffered a devastating injury that ended his track career. Since then, he's made a new career out of health and wellness and helping runners build the strength that will keep them running for life. As a strength and conditioning coach, Jay has worked with professional athletes, celebrities like Jennifer Lopez and Ryan Seacrest, and weekend warriors like us. He recently partnered with Runner's World on a DVD called 10-Minute Cross-Training for Runners. The DVD contains five 10-minute routines that focus on strength, mobility, and flexibility drills. Editor Katie Knight spent some time with Jay to understand just why these moves are so critical for runners. And then she tried them out herself. I sat down with Jay Cardiello recently to learn about his post-run workout program and to hear the very personal reason why he's so passionate about keeping runners injury-free. So I, I was a um, track and field athlete. Uh, so when we were doing drills, I was a long jumper and uh, had reached too far and uh, one of the phases of uh, a practice drill. And if I had that hip mobility and strength, I would have been able to have my leg recover and come under my body uh, much faster than uh, it did at that time. So it was really too far out in front of my body. We were doing plyometric drills, and uh, I was on the left side, and my foot made contact with the ground. So if we know anything about physics, you know, what goes into the ground comes back at a lot more times of pressure. And... uh, I was going so fast forward that when the foot was out too far, it put an automatic break. So the energy just went back into, uh, it just went up my leg into my spine and that the thing called your tailbone kind of cracked. <laughs> but I laugh about it and joke about it because here's the thing. I'm fortunate now that I'm a coach and I can understand when people say, I'm injured, you don't understand. Yeah, I do. Bottom of my spine is fused. The top of my spine is fused. I had to get six knee surgeries because what happens is your hips become so asymmetrical through all your recovery that everything starts to hurt. Then I had to get hip surgery. Then the irony, I had to get a shoulder surgery because if you hurt something on your uh, left side, you know, you start compensating on your right side. So it took many years. I was in a, a body brace for six months to rebuild everything. But it was great. And people were just like, Why? Was it so great when you were down so low? And I was like, I wasn't. I'm a coach now. And if I'm with whatever athlete, whether the first time they're coming off the couch to a person who's been in the Olympics and they've won, everybody goes through a time of pain. Everybody goes through a time of doubt. And I was able to understand not only the physicality of the struggle of coming back from injury, but the men- mental struggle. So everything that I went through I didn't want any runner to experience that. So I wiped the board clean. We developed this workout. We put it forth, and we said, hey, guys, listen. Hey, ladies, listen. This workout can help you increase not only who you are as an individual and as a runner, but prevent you from ever experiencing what I did. Jay knows that getting runners to strength train can be a tough sell. It didn't come naturally to him either. Once I was done with the track, I was like, I just want to get off, get out of here, and head and get something to eat. I didn't invest the time post-workout in what my body was seeking. So personally speaking, I really wish I would have had this going into the University of Arkansas when I was competing because 10 minutes is is really nothing. So here's what it is, a 10-minute post-run workout. 
It's comprised of five parts that focus on leg strength, mobility, and your core. It's all body weight stuff, so you don't need any equipment. You also don't need a lot of space, just a four by four foot square, which means you can do the workout anywhere. The moves involve variations of planks, lunges, and squats. I wanted to ask Jay specifically about mobility. It's a skill that sounds a lot like flexibility, but it's very different. And it's incredibly important for runners. Could you talk a little bit about mobility in, in, in particular? I think we hear a lot about flexibility, but how is mobility different and how is that valuable? Sure. Our joints have a range of motion. And I, one thing I always thought about, you know, with my injuries, how could I, I have prevented it? But if you think about it, your hip is a ball and socket joint. It's meant to rotate 360 degrees. So it's important that even though we may run on a treadmill or run on a track where we're going in a linear fashion, our hip is meant to rotate in 360 degrees. So increasing the mobility will help you prevent injury further down the line. And that's very important because if your hips get tight, not only does it affect your range of motion, it also is going to affect tightness throughout your hip flexor throughout your psoas, it's gonna affect your posture, and if you can keep your form, that's gonna hold your speed throughout the entire race. And if your hips are tight, you may strike too far in front of your body, that's gonna put on a brake. You may step too far behind or too much out to the side. And that's one thing, if, you, if you're secure with your body and your stability and your training, the sky's the limit. I think that's something that we are discovering more and more. It seems over the past decade, there's been just research study after research study linking hip weakness and tightness and just overall dysfunction in the hip glute area to injuries all the way down to the foot. So I think that's something that we're trying to cover more in the magazine and stress to readers that you might have foot or ankle pain, but you don't just treat your foot or ankle. It all seems to originate at the, at the hip level. It's true. We address the effects. We don't address the root cause. We don't uh, address that why factor. Whenever I start working with runners or any professional athlete, I turn over the running shoes and I want to see the wear and tear. And maybe there's wear and tear too much on the right side or the left. And I know, hey, listen, you got the ankle pain, you got the knee pain because your hips are asymmetrical. Why don't we start working on these mobility drills? And after a while, you'll see even wear and tear. And that's what you're going for. You make a very valid point is that don't address the effect. Address the why. Address the root. And you'll cut down the effects. Makes total sense, right? Still, it's just one more thing to stuff into our very busy lives. But Jay isn't buying the, I don't have time for this excuse. We all have 10 minutes. By the time that you got off the track and went to the car, found your keys, grabbed your phone, it's probably 10 minutes you could have completed this. The trick, he says, is to make this workout part of your run. I see so many runners. They come off the trail, go right into the car. You know, where's that transition? And this is your transition. Don't think of it as like, I have to do another workout, saying... This is part of what my training protocols are now. I like that. I like that idea of just thinking of it as just the, the cool down maybe or, or the next part of your workout because that's – I'm so guilty of that, <laughs> like of, of finishing a hard run and, okay, now i got to get out of here. And um, so it seems like this really helps jumpstart your recovery too. Like maybe you would feel less sore, less beat up after a hard workout. Is that, is that true? That is true. That's a great point. This allows you to naturally have the body calm down, decrease your body temperature, increase your range of motion, because after a hard run, you know, your legs are, they feel like cement, your, your body's blood pulling as soon as you sit in the car. This is a great way to, what? 
take the body from a work state to a rest state naturally. Think about this, if your muscles are so tight and then you sit in the chair all day but you did nothing to go from the track, the trail, to the seat, you're most likely gonna have a lot of tension, tightness throughout your muscles. You're gonna, have, you're gonna decrease your range of motion. So when you ask your body now the next day to perform at such a high level on your next day sprint and run, your body's gonna say, well listen, you didn't put in what, it, what I needed your post-workout, so you wanna know something? I'm gonna pull back. And if you're, say your quad on your right side is tight because you didn't take the action that you needed in just 10 minutes, your leg on the other side is gonna say, oh, I'm gonna overcompensate, I have knee pain. You know, if you're not taking care of your hip flexors and doing these mobility drills, oh, your psoasis are tight, and they're gonna tighten up even more while you're sitting at your desk all day. So this is a great way that you can invest in yourself to gain more. These are gonna help you stay more focused on enjoying the scenery, enjoying the trail run, as opposed to, I can feel my ankle. Can I go much further? Can I go much further? You don't want that. You're gonna say, wow, I shaved off 30 seconds. I shaved off 10 seconds. I went an extra mile today. That's enjoyable. Yeah, I love that. I need this. I think, I think injury is every runner's worst nightmare. So anything you can do um, to keep yourself healthy is, is a good investment. So if you're a runner who maybe isn't hitting the track and isn't doing mega mileage, what kind of value is there for them? Just people who are very casual, maybe even people who are new to the sport, who are just getting out there, say, three days a week. We all have to rush to work. We all have to pick up a child. We all have to incorporate running up and down the stairs and be active in life. To be active in life is to enjoy life. It's, it's to be part of life. Nobody wants to be you know, in, in bed or, or in the couch when they're suffering from pain. So for whether, from the professional runner on down to the guy that's a, their girl that's a weekend warrior that wants to go out for a run on the weekends, this is great because it's gonna put you in a state where your body and your mind are gonna work at their full potential. Okay, so after my conversation with Jay, I knew I had to give this routine a try. So I hit the treadmill here at the Energy Center, which is the gym for employees of Rodale, the parent company of Runner's World. I was interested in Jay's post-run workout for a couple of reasons. Like I said, I'm guilty of heading straight from a run to the car or to work. That's because I'm super busy. I have two little kids, a full-time job, and a long commute. Time is a luxury. But I'm also injury prone. I've been battling a chronically sore hamstring and weak glutes for a long time. If there's a time-efficient way to shore up my weak spots, I had to give it a shot. After an easy run on the treadmill, and with producer Christine Fennessy recording, I popped in the DVD that Jay Cardiello did in partnership with Runner's World. Uh, so Jay promises that this is quick and easy and only takes 10 minutes, so I'm gonna see if, uh, if that's true and this is as easy as he says it is. On the DVD, I had five post-run workouts to choose from. Core strength, arm strength, hip strength, mobility, and stability. I picked the stability routine because it featured a lot of one-legged exercises, which is particularly important to me because I have some weakness on my left side that causes my right side to overcompensate. Okay, now I'm doing when I started, like it seemed easy enough. A leg raise. It's a very simple move. I followed Jay and his runner models as they did lumberjack squats and a squat to knee raise. But then we hit some challenging right. one-legged exercises. This might be hard. <laughs> I'm doing a one-legged squat, which requires balance. Okay, I gotta bend a little bit more forward. I feel this one. This is definitely challenging. The one-legged squats are meant to strengthen the major muscles in the legs. 
the glutes, the quads, the hamstrings. But they are especially good for runners because they strengthen the stabilizing muscles in your pelvis, which you rely on when you run. A lot of Jay's exercises focus on balance moves like these because running is really a one-legged balancing act. You are landing and pushing off the ground one leg at a time. One-legged moves are more functional for runners than two-legged moves because they mimic the running motion better. Woo, okay, here's a balance move. <laughs> I'm doing kind of like a one-legged deadlift. Yeah, I feel this. <laughs> My balance isn't as great as it should be but I, I feel this in my um, hamstring. We also did variations on classic moves like squats, planks, and lunges. Jay likes to put his own spin on these, which adds to the challenge by working muscles in new ways. Yeah, I'm not used to doing a lunge with a kick at the end, so that's uh, different. There were modifications within each move too, so if something feels too advanced, you've got options. One of the models on the DVD has his totally doing a one-legged squat on one leg and the other model has both legs on the floor and it's doing a squat just to show different levels which is nice I appreciate that. The workout really hit home when we started doing the forward and backward walkovers. So picture stepping forward over an imaginary hurdle and then backward over the same hurdle. The move really opened up my hips which are chronically tight. Tight hip flexors are linked to weak glutes, which is a problem for me and lots of runners. Weak glutes don't function fully, and other muscles, like my sore hamstring, can become overworked as a result. Moves this really, wow, is nice. <laughs> I'm feeling my hips kind of open up and loosen up. So this is really kind of forcing like an overextension in a good way <laughs> my hips. Now we're going backwards. So yeah, I should be doing this before I sit in the car, for sure. And then there were these alternating leg swings where you're basically just kicking one leg forward at a time. It had a big effect. Wow, this move looks really, really simple. It looks like one of the most simple ones of the whole routine, but I really feel this because my hamstrings are so tight. I should be doing this one too. <laughs> I think that move would be really good for me and my hamstrings because I could feel the backs of my legs loosening up. Even with the stuff that seemed easy, I could totally see how it would improve my running. Like when I did Jay's balance beam planks, which basically involves getting down in a plank position and lifting one leg and the opposite arm at the same time and then switching sides. When I was doing those, I really felt my core engage. And a strong core is so important for runners. It helps prevent injuries and it powers your running. Jay was right. In nearly the time it would take me to catch my breath after a run, I'd be done with this workout and feeling it. I'm sweating. I'm surprised. <laughs> For 10 minutes, I'm sold. As a time-crunched, injury-prone runner, I need a short, simple, and effective injury prevention workout. Jay's DVD obviously makes it easy to learn the moves that will help fortify you as a runner, but you can also just commit to adding a few lunges, squats, and planks to your post-run cool-down. Try to mix it up and vary the direction and the repetitions and increase the challenge when you're feeling ready. Because like Jay says, so much of being a better runner on the track happens off of it. Given the tight state of my hip flexors and given the number of hours I spend sitting every day, I am definitely going to try out this routine as well. 
10 minutes does not seem like it's asking too much if it'll keep some of those nagging injuries and pains away. You can check out the full stability workout for yourself if you go to runnersworld.com audio. There, you can also find a link to purchase the DVD, 10-Minute Cross Training for Runners. Okay, it's time for the kick. Here are producer Brian Dalek and reporter Kit Fox. Okay, where are we starting in the world of running this week, Kit? We're going to start with octogenarian superhero Ed Whitlock. Yeah, we all love Ed Whitlock here at Runner's World. And and for those of you who yeah. don't know who Ed is, um, you should. He's 85 years old, and he pretty much owns every age group record that you can own in running. But he's back at it again, this time running a marathon. Yeah, he, at the Toronto Waterfront Marathon this past Sunday. He did, and he, he ran the marathon in three hours and 56 minutes. So and again... 85. At 85. that again. So he sets the age group mark. The previous mark was set 12 years ago at 434.55. So that's more than like a minute per mile faster than the previous mark. But the, the weird thing, if you read his comments after the race, he was a little disappointed in his performance despite setting the record. So Ed had a race plan that he didn't execute as well. Said he wanted to run sub 350. Mm-hmm. At 85, I'm going to keep saying that. Yeah. Um, and uh, City started out a little too fast, just kind of like all of us. Yeah, I mean, Ed, he has these like kind of weird quirks. He just basically runs around a cemetery near his home. And, like, I don't think he's there's a, any symbolism in that, is there, No, nah, nah, he's but he's a creature of habit. It even showed itself in this race in Toronto. He ran in 15-year-old running shoes. I guess, you know, he purchased those back when he was a spry, young 70. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I just cleaned up my closet, and I don't—yeah, there's no way I'm keeping a shoe from five years ago, let alone 15. But. I don't think I own anything that's 15 years old. Yeah, exactly. Congratulations to Ed Whitlock again. I'm sure he's going to be breaking some ultramarathon record sometime soon if he wants. Yeah, and Ed, I I hope you're sitting on the edge of your seat because in in about 60 years, Brian's coming for that record. I'm going to come for it. I'm going to stop running for 60 years to save my legs for that moment. He's already tapering, I think, right? Yeah, Yeah, let's stay in Toronto because... He wasn't the only one who broke a record at the Toronto Marathon. Several Guinness records went down. One in particular was very fast. So we had another just ridiculously impressive record. Um, I'm going to use the official Guinness mm-hmm. World Record language because it's my favorite. Um, said, of course, in a British accent, the fastest marathon pushing a pram, parentheses male. And if you don't know what a pram is. If you don't speak British. A pram a is a stroller. Yeah. So. Um, but uh, Caleb Neff broke the record with his four-year-old daughter, Alessandra, and together they ran a marathon in two hours and 31 minutes and 22 seconds. Yeah, Caleb earlier this year set the record for a half marathon in a stroller, and yeah, I'm, I think we are all more impressed by the fact that you can keep a child entertained for like longer than two hours in a stroller. I mean, A, that's a motivating factor, but B... I'm just wondering, this has just got to be like a roller coaster for the kid because you're going that fast. Do you think they're like watching something on a phone to entertain themselves, like Mickey Mouse Club, something? Two and a half hours is a good Disney movie. I mean, you could knock out Lion King in that amount of time. Okay, so quickly moving on from the Stroller World record, there were other Guinness records that went down 
and when I look at these records, they're what I would consider soft records, according to Megan Keita, who we all know as the hot dog marathon world record holder in the marathon. She set that last year. But the one that stood out to me was the fastest marathon dressed as a chef, male, Daniel Janitos. He he took the record in three hours, 56 minutes, and 21 seconds. But he wasn't the only chef who took yeah. the streets in Toronto. If if you want to go for these two separate records, we just need like a buy one get one free. Yeah, it's on the Halloween costume. time. Yeah. Let's find one. So uh, fastest marathon, fastest half marathon, dresses a chef male went down. Um, Jasper Moster uh, ran it in two hours twenty three minutes and forty three seconds. The one thing that's concerning with the chef costume is both pictures of these gentlemen. They have like pots in their hands, so I you think probably have to run with a pot. I don't know if there's a requirement for how heavy that has to be. We'll look into it. But yeah, I think we need to find the performance pot. Right. Something a light metal. Not a heavy cast iron here. Sweat wicking, exactly. Yeah. Um, the other one that looked a little soft to me, fastest half marathon dressed as a swimmer, <laughs> male. Um, Which it seems like a scam to me because it's <laughs> you just need to take off your shirt and he's got a snorkel and goggles on his face and floaties. Yes. Um, so. Yeah, you can break that. What was the time, Brian? Robert Wenkler, he ran it in one hour, 47 minutes, and 50 seconds. I mean, that's still really fast, but you're not changing up the costume that much from what a normal runner could. We have friends who run shirtless all the time. Yeah, just got to get the snorkel and goggles. And the floaties. Always got to get the floaties as well. Okay, now while we're considering breaking these records, um, a new study came out to talk about um, more running shoe news for us to consider. Yeah, and just jumping back to Ed Whitlock wore shoes from 15 years ago. We just got our new batch of shoes to start testing for an upcoming issue. So yeah, shoes are on the mind here. A new study came out that we reported on last week, kind of showing if there's any difference in injury rates, something people are always thinking about when it comes to the heel to toe drop in a shoe. So that's the difference between the height of your heel when you're in a shoe and down to your toes. So in, in a way, I like to think about this probably the easiest is um, if someone's like wearing heels, high yeah. heels out, that's that's a, a very high heel to toe drop. Mm-hmm. Running shoes don't obviously have that dramatic of a Yeah, like if drop. you have a 10 to 12 millimeter drop, that's a bit higher. And, and the minimalism craze from a few years ago, you'd have like a zero drop. So people believe that, you know, one way is better than the other, and this study is trying to look at whether there's a difference to that. So in this study, researchers followed 533 runners for six months, and they put them in different shoes for that span of time, a zero-millimeter drop, a six-millimeter drop, and 10-millimeter drop. Do you think there was any difference in injuries when it came to, like, their lower legs or back? Um, I have no idea. I think one conclusion we can drop it from this is probably not to run in high heels. Yes, yes, just to go back to that. Yeah, running but, in high heels, unless you're very skilled at it. But what did what did the study Or find? you want to set a Guinness World Record in Exactly, high heels. yeah. But no, there was really no difference after six months for all of these runners. Okay, so it sounds like shoe drop, at least scientifically for injury prevention, doesn't seem to matter. So, so what's the conclusion? Well, I think it kind of comes back to what we've reported on a lot before. When you're picking out a shoe, you kind of want to go with what is the most comfortable. If you like a lightweight trainer with a low drop, stick with that if you haven't been injured. If you need more cushioning, um, you pound the pavement a little harder, and you like a drop that has that, 
stick with that. It's exactly the reason why I run in moon boots. <laughs> yeah, moon boots can work um, if that's what you want to do. Do what's most comfortable yeah. for you. But if you want to transition to you know anything, say you're in a shoe for a long time and you want to transition to something new, just take your time with it. Don't you know run 26 miles in it the first time. You're probably more likely to you know end up not feeling great after that run. All right, and Kit, the final thing, we had a great and busy weekend in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. We had our Runner's World Half and Festival, so that includes a trail race on Friday, a 5 and 10K on Saturday morning, and, you know, you follow that up with a half marathon on Sunday. So in total, 4,700 people participated between the four races, and because so many people do multiple races throughout the weekend, we actually had 6,000 finishers. And Kit, I know you did the trail race on Friday, right? Yeah, I tried to be a hero, pulled my hamstring. You doing okay, Kit? Coach Bud is is fixing me. Okay. We'll be back on the trails in like two weeks. You'll be out there with me soon, so that'll be great. But um, the other thing, uh, you kind of—I saw this in a tweet. You mentioned that there might be something in the water aid stations in all of our races because we saw a lot of one particular thing happen this weekend. Well, you know, I used to think that maybe like Paris or like Finnis were, <laughs> were the most romantic places on earth. No, mm-hmm. it's Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, <laughs> Runners World Half Marathon weekend because I witnessed personally two proposals mm-hmm. that occurred <laughs> one at um our pasta dinner on saturday night which may be a first you know because nothing goes better than marriage than carbs <laughs> right so um and then another at our finish line of course but we also caught up with another couple that was uh was getting married yeah so this couple on saturday morning beth train and michael prospero they show up to race he's wearing kind of the the running shirt that looks like a suit jacket she has on, running gear, looking like a bride. And after they do the 5K in the morning, later on that day, they're going to actually get married nearby. Our video team, Derek Cohen, David Graff, caught up with them, trying to like figure out you know, why you would want to do a race before your wedding. You know, We want to do, uh, keep our expectations uh, reasonable because we've got a lot to do, but... Um, one of the reasons we met is actually we used to run a lot, and we both ran the uh, New York City Marathon in 2013. And so we figured, what better than to you know run a race the day that we're getting married? Gotcha. And now, so honeymoon, you going running anywhere for the honeymoon at all? Well, we have a half marathon the weekend after we get back, so we kind of have no choice but to <laughs> run. So we will be in Paris and the Amalfi Coast and in Venice, so we will have some nice scenery to run by. We, we plan to. <laughs> so... Congratulations to everyone that uh, found love on the roads of Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. Now, if if you want next year to mm-hmm. up the ante a little bit, I think our colleague Chris Michael yeah. might be ordained online. So I believe we can, that's true. We could set up a little aid station wedding for you guys. Aid station wedding. We could have him work a seminar booth. You know, they have the drive-through Elvises in Vegas to do weddings. Chris is essentially that. Yes. So, um, you know, that's a service that we'll offer. Contact us. Uh, Brian's here to give a great best man speech if you need that. Yeah, rwaudio at rodale.com if, if that's what you want for next year. We'll All see right. what we can do. Sounds good. Thanks for coming down to do the kick again this week, Kit. Thanks, Brian. That's it for this week's show. Please keep those ratings and reviews coming. We read every one of them. 
I'm David Willey, Editor-in-Chief of Runner's World. This week's show was produced by Sylvia Ryerson, Mervyn Deganos, Christine Fennessy, and Brian Dalek. Next week, and just in time for the Marine Corps Marathon, an interview with Lisa Hallett, founder of Wear Blue, Run to Remember. Wear Blue is an amazing organization, and Lisa is a terrific person. This is a great conversation. You won't want to miss it. We'll see you next week.